and we welcome all of you to our broadcast today. We have a guest who has been with us before, Kyle Jones. Kyle, welcome again. I think you're going to enjoy our program today. Kyle, every time we get together, uh, you seem to have some deep, profound theological thought you've been thinking on. I guess before we get into this this morning, I want to say, could you tell me what's the thing that impels you to be such a thinking person to where you're really going into profound theological thought? Well, as we as we both know each other for, I think we've known each other for what, probably 15 years or so. Yes. Maybe 15 years. We are both thinking people. I think all people are thinking people. The problem is that we, being thinking people, will project what we see, if you will, our idiolect, upon the thing. If you say the word think, if you define the word think and you go back to its uh, least common denominator, there is a book called Indo-European Etymologies by uh, the American Heritage uh, Dictionary uh, Company Foundation. And uh, they have defined think, believe it or not, uh, as reflexive with graciousness. And that is to say that when you are thinking, you are reflecting upon all of your experiences, all of the things that you've witnessed, seen, all the things that you've pondered upon, all the things that you've formulated, all of the things that you have summed up in thought, when you put the object or the thing into your thinking, you come to a higher summation of the thing um, or the idea. Um, and interestingly enough, it, it, the uh, Indo-European etymology uh, implies graciousness within this act, uh, more or less a collage word. The idea of being gracious is that we do not apply a legal strata to the thing observed. We look at it for what or how it functions within our subjective existence. So this is the, the technically the word for think. So as we define uh, the word think, we in the Western world say think to sum up many ideas, and uh, and as the the definition to think as we have defined is it's very complex in in itself that one word we have other words such as freno and greek which is where i get the in the greek text and the in the new testament as well as is homer and as well as plato aristotle we they use the term freno in, uh, to think out it's where we get the word brain to analyze the thing uh, we have another word in greek called edo which means to see it's where we get the word wit from uh, it means to see both good and evil it's uh, almost the plight of adam and eve they could see both things they they were good enough to see the good but uh, both both sides of the equation blepo is another greek word it means to see observe with the ocular sense or the observance and then gnosko which is uh, the highest word for me i believe it's the word for genius or to be uh, in the connecting thing to join gnosko the the the, the proto-indo-european zero grade gen or uh, for for Gnaeus or or genius it also has to do with joining in genealogies it's a very complex word it's a multi uh, collage it's a multi it's a multiplicity of meaning to create one thing so, anyway these are very th that's a very complex word but these are all terms that we use in terms of a in a Greek thinking mind or even a Hebrew thinking mind to say I come to uh, an idea by all these attributes. So with that said, if we use our, our, our analytical sense, the freno, if we use the terms of good and evil to see both good and, and bad, if we see with our, with our eyes the ocular observance of man and his witness, if we see the, the, the gnosko, or, or if we're in the gnosko to join things together to sum up an idea, uh, we can apply think in the sense that we can put all things together and reflect upon a grand total sum of something observed. Even the word thing itself is tong. It means to, uh, in the Proto-Indo-European, it means 
into the assembly. It means the full treatment of the thing. So in that sense, if we truly think, and I say that uh, untechnically, then we, we will apply technically all the terms that I've just mentioned to approach the thing. And so in that sense, there is unity in thinking. And if there is unity in thinking and we approach things in terms of unity, then it must be a sense or reflection of something much greater than ourselves that is in unison with itself. So in order to approach a grand thing, a grand sum, we cannot be one-dimensional with it. We have to apply many attributes and sum them up to approach a great total sum, which I call a unification. I would go ahead and say a unifying God. A unifying God. In other words, you're, you're seeing all of these different aspects of thinking as a reflection of something that is singular, and that being God. In other words, saying that there's a unity to all of reality, a unity in, in the universe. So what, what do you mean by this unifying unity? I would say a singleness, a oneness with all things, all things being summed up once again, all things being caused and affected by something, all things being constituted by something, all things being ended by something. Therefore, if I can, if I can take this equation in terms of unity uh, with the Bible, if we could go to uh, to Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, you can see a tremendous uh, verse or verses for unification. It says, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made. Isaiah 46 verse 10 and 11 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. In verse 46 of Isaiah 46, it says, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, and I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Kyle, you're bringing God into the equation here. You're saying essentially that one cannot think truly without reference to God, but somebody might say, well, I don't need God in order for me to think. I can think without God. We've got unbelievers who apparently are very intelligent who, who can think. Are you saying that truly, in one sense of the word, we cannot think apart from God? Once again, it doesn't have to start with the idea of God necessarily. It has to end with God, and it truly does begin with God. But if you were to take thought, once again, in terms of seeing a thing act in congruency with other things, and I use the term thing once again to say assembly or the total sum of something observed, we have to, we're forced by nature itself, by physics itself, to go more quantum than just one-dimensional. If you take the higher laws of physics, you, you don't look at things from a one-dimensional standpoint. Everything's quadratic and, and beyond. We look at things from a multiplicity of views and angles. So, uh, is God to be less complex than, than physics that we already understand? I don't think so. In that sense, we have to look at anything that we observe from a vantage point of multiple angles, if you will. So, Kyle, it almost seems like you're saying that a person who doesn't believe in God, let's say a non-theist, that he's not thinking. Is that what you mean to say? No, I don't mean to say that. What I mean to say is that even a non-theist, he'll be forced by nature itself to look at anything. Let's say you're studying Koine Greek, which is the New Testament language. If you are a non-theist or a theist, either way... 
if you want to, to understand where that language came from, you have to study morphology or the, the changing of the languages from the earliest grade, the, the Proto-Indo-European, to, to Hittitic, to Linear B, Linear A, Attic, Classical Greek. We have to go all the way down. We have to go all the way back to get to all the way down. And so looking at even Koine Greek, you have to understand why cultures, how cultures affected Greek. You have to understand the history, the movement of, of different scholars and, and the constitutional acts upon different cultures, uh, the different laws, the changing of laws, uh, different ideas. All of these things that are imposed upon a, a moving language, a living language that takes on a different color but might retain its nutshell meaning. So even in, in a basic premise such as studying languages, you can see that you need to know more than just Koine Greek if you want to get the fuller treatment for that thing, that, that language. In that sense, it doesn't matter if you're a theist or a non-theist. That has nothing to do with it for right now. We're forced to see that we have to become more complex, that we have to see more vantage points than a one-dimensional vantage point to understand a thing. Okay, now you've come to talk about theists, people who believe in God. Let's move in that direction, because there are many times people who, we might call them pagans, or, or shamanists, or mystery religion people, or whatever it may be, Eastern religions, non-Christian religions, people who believe in a God, and oftentimes they reach conclusions very similar to that of, of Christianity. Well, I guess this is confusing to Christians, because some people say, well, did the Christians just copy these ideas that are out there? So are they reflecting what is this great reality, or should we be afraid of them? No, I don't believe we should fear any of these other uh, religions. We define religion, and by the way, as the Greek, threskia, or the way that we operate on a daily basis. A person who does not believe in Jesus but brushes his teeth and believes that he should brush his teeth in the morning and the evening has a religion. It's the modus operandi, and our Latin religio is the same, has the same meaning. So in that sense, religion is a far-encompassing word, too. In terms of Christianity, we define Christianity by what Christ said and did and what he completed and where he trajected what he said to the future. And we know uh, and act in accordance with what he said. But there are extraneous religions and beliefs, texts that we have that I believe in this grand unity of God that not only reflect Christ himself, but they are preceded by something much older than them, such as the Maseroth. Maseroth was the story of the stars. It's the wheel in the sky, the, the 12 decans or mansions that, that express a glorification of a God to come once and twice. So so this is a hope of a great hero that would gather a certain people. Now, let's go into this a little bit more. I know that you have mentioned the idea of the Finnish epic as being fundamental here. And at this point, the time we're recording this, uh, my wife and I are planning a trip to Finland for the first time. And that kind of got us started on all this, as I remember when we were discussing it the Kalevala and all of that. Do you want to bring that in as, as an example of what you've been talking about? That's a great example, and I'm glad that you wanted to talk about that because I was excited for you on your trip to Finland, so I would like to have your uh, your trip to be more uh, fun-filled and to be more eventful and and full of God's spirit, too. So Finland is a great arena to talk about. But before I, I hit Finland, I, I want to preface this with a statement from the Bible in Psalms uh, 19, verse 1, stating that the heavens declare the glory of God, 
And in Psalms 50, verse 6, it says that the heavens shall declare his righteousness. And this is referring to God, God's righteousness. Psalms 97, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. And we know the glory of God is Christ. Psalms 147, verse 4, God says he telleth the number of of the stars, he calls them all by their names. Very interesting word. The word number is the word mispar in Hebrew, and it means to narrate a story. So there is a story to be told in the stars. In Genesis 1, verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs. And this is the word oath. It means an evidence or an omen, and also for seasons and for days and for years. So we have a preclusion to any culture before the culture began. If you believe in creation, if you believe in a God, if we can take this term or this vantage point in constructing an idea of thought, unity, I'm going to take the premise that God was here before the world began. I'm going to take the premise that God ordained, orchestrated, and set forth before the worlds began his glory. And when he did set them in place, the heavens immediately were the declaration of God's righteousness, which I believe is Jesus Christ. Then is this, in a way, the stars and the pagan myths Are these necessary in God's scheme of things? You said a moment ago, we don't need to be afraid of it, but are these things actually necessary as it works out, as God ordains everything? Do all of these things have a place in this Christ-like epic, the epic of the world of reality that is Christ? I believe so. And once again, with the premise that I believe that the Bible has stated, there's nothing that precludes that. There's nothing that comes before the story of the Maseroth and before God, but the initial story of the Maseroth set forth a hero's journey. And no matter what culture you look in, no matter how old the culture, there's always an epic story. There's always an epic story of a hero to to teach, to guide, to assemble, to lead. No matter where, there's a common theme, There's there's a commonality amongst all cultures with their myths, beliefs, religions, etc. And we were discussing this the other day about the broken shards of glass or a beautiful paganism. These are terms that I believe in because if you look at culture, old culture, old history, old languages, from the lens viewpoint that God started it, God will end it, then I believe that you can see everything else clearly. And I believe not only do you not have to be afraid of other cultures and other religions, if you have this subjective viewpoint of all cultures began, they had a beginning that preceded them that was God, that had a unifying majesty. There's beauty in it, and we can see relevance in symmetry between the time that God made all things to the time that we are now, but all cultures that preceded us. We see a unity, a symmetry. I personally have fun reading old religious themes and old myths from Finland, the Tamil culture, Aboriginal cultures from Australia. I enjoy this because I see a reflection of God's majesty. These are such that we would call broken shards of glass or a diffusion or diffraction from the original source. And so what you're saying is that the broken shards of glass put back together in Christ. There is this completeness, and man in his sin has (laughs) dropped the jar and broken it, and now we have these pieces. And so all these pagan epics and all these uh, the shamanistic views are reflections like broken pieces of a beautiful vessel. This is the excitement, if you will. This is my excitement to think. If we look at God unifying things and things broken f- from an orderly state, a singularity, if you will, to a diffusion, 
if we by faith believe that God has set it forth and that even diffusion by the laws of physics are still mathematically diffusing all things under the laws of entropy in the second law of thermodynamics in physics state that all things being equative, all things are diffusing out equitively, mathematically. And this applies, I believe, to language, culture, and religion. But if we believe that these broken shards of glass are pieces or reflections of God, if we believe that God has bound it together, then we can look at these pieces and formulate the gospel of Christ in a different way, but it's still glorifying Christ. And so the gospel of Christ is written throughout all of these broken shards of glass. But if we do not look at individual cultures, at these religions, these historical movements and languages, if we don't look at these things from the perspective of God's divine majesty, his ordination, his unison, his unity, then then we're going to be chasing bits and pieces or objects for the rest of our lives. And I find that to be most depressing, to learn more and more information, never, never coming to any conclusions. The other way is grand. The other way is fun. And it's the way that I enjoy thinking. You mentioned earlier, and let's go back and develop this idea of the stars, because not everybody is going to read and study all this literature that you have studied. But everybody can look up in the sky at night and see the stars. We all know the stories of the signs of the stars. And this is something physical. It's something tangible. It's something people can see, which you said earlier is also proclaiming the glory of God, the majesty of God. Do you want to comment on that? Why you take the stars seriously? If all things are once again under this divine unison, this divine unity, and God has declared from the beginning all things to the very end, and the heavens themselves declare the glory of God, if God has numbered each star by name and told a, a narration or a story through them, I'm going to take him seriously. And I'm going to try my best to find out the meaning of these stars. It is sad that we, as over time goes on, that we have lost some of the deeper meaning of the words in the stars. But thank God for what you would call or I would call older pagan cultures that have retained uh, or have retention of the meanings of these names in their movements. And we were discussing, for instance, the old Hebrew language and how that it captures the movement of a thing rather than saying it as object. I really do believe in that, such as the Chinese language as well. It captures not just movement, but essence of all things. It's a story within one pictogram. So these are complex ideas that, hit, that are so rich and thick that even as they're diffused, there's still going to be a nutshell retention of the meanings of the words. That's why I like to go back to old Aramean cultures, old Sumerian cultures, old Babylonian cultures, to find what I can find, and old Chinese cultures, to find what I can find in terms of meanings of these stars. Yes, I believe that there is an absolute meaning to the stars in their name. They're narrated by God. They're told by God. They're numbered by God. So I take these specific things, these particulars, if you will, very seriously. And this is one of the reasons why I like to study etymologies and the meanings of of the words and languages. It's motivated, generated, caused by believing in a unification or a unison God. If I did not believe that all things were to his glory and that things were random, or by what we say chance, but even the word chance means kaderi, to gradate to a fixed position or to fall to the lot. If I believe that things were random, I wouldn't bother. But even in the word chance, it does give significance to order. You mentioned a minute ago the uh, fact that many of these uh, pagan myths had preserved this testimony in the stars. And one of them that we were discussing was the story of the great bear. Do you want to comment on, yes. on the great bear? Fantastic. The great bear, I'm going, to, I'm going to read from a Finnish epic 
called the Kalevala. J.R. Tolkien knew this very well. He formulated most of his ideas from from this uh, text, as well as older Celtic uh, texts, for his trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And in the High Kenyan language, or the High Elvish language, he based it off of the Finnish language, a very highly developed language that we even now have, I think, 12 different inflections on, the, on a noun, which is, it supersedes that of a Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin. So this is a highly developed language. Tolkien implied that it was an Edenic type language. He felt that it was something more than just made for speaking. I want to read from a textbook. I'm going to start off with a hero or his birth and his mother birthed him. I think you might see some analogies here between the virgin birth of Christ and Vinamorn and his mother. So here's the first one. So The wind blew her pregnant. The sea made her thick through. She carried a hard womb, a stiff belly full, for 700 years, not for nine ages of man. As the mother of the water, the virgin went hither and yon. She swims east, she swims west. Here is the birthing of the, of the baby in the, the woman who was impregnated by a wind. Steadfast old Vinamoinen. This is the Christ-like figure, if you will. Old in, in the mother's womb. Went about in his mother's womb for 30 summers, the same numbers of winters too. And if you can draw a conclusion or analogy to that, it would be the age of Christ where he he was in this earth and did not pronounce himself as Christ yet. On those gentle waters, the waters being as the people, on the misty billows, he ponders, he reflects how to exist, how to live in his dark hiding place, in the cramped dwelling where he never saw the moon nor spied the sun. He speaks these words, made, made this utterance, Moon, free me. Sun, release me. Great bear, ever guide me. Now, I'm going to stop right here, but I'm going to continue later on with this great bear. The great bear was the constellation that was seen in northern Finland, and it never ceases. It's always a pole constellation. Uh, it never it never goes in retrograde. The great bear was seen by Vinamoinen to guide him. It was his lodestar, Shakespeare said. It was his guiding star. It was his purpose. If I can draw over to Frances Rolston, who wrote a book on the Maseroth back in the 1700s, she has defined the great bear and the meanings of each of the stars. And if I can quote seven or eight of these stars, there is a first one. There is a first star by its name retained called Ash, and it does mean the assembled one. It is also the name for Arcturus, which is also related to the great bear. There is another star in the Arabic called Duba, meaning herd of animals. In the Chaldean, the old Babylonian, it also uh, means, uh, excuse me, the new Babylonian, excuse me, it means the wealth or strength. There's another, there's another Hebrew word another for another star called Al-Akola, meaning the sheepfold. And you can reference that in Psalm. Psalms uh, 47, I believe. Uh, Bennett Nash is another star. It's called the Daughters of the Assembly. And you can find that in Joel 3, verse 11. And it also uh, means uh, daughters of many assembled. Another star within this constellation of the great bear, Kabad al-Assad, which is an Arabic term. It means wealth or multitude. Once again, it means daughter, many assembled. Anaish means the assembled. Also see Ash on that one. The Hebrew, there's a beta star called Morak, meaning the flock. In the, Ara- in the Arabic, it's more majestic, which we would say the purchased flock, which I think is very key. Another star in Arabic and in Hebrew called Magrez, meaning the separated ones as the flock of the fold, the ones who are cut off. There's another Arabic word, Fakad or Fakaya or Fakada, meaning the visited, the guarded, or the numbered. And finally, we have a Hebrew word, Mizar, meaning the separate ones. 
So we have a collage, if you will, of a bucolic constellation or, or a pastoral constellation, a constellation that, that sums up a sheepfold that's to be purchased, some being cut off, some being lost, but it's they're purchased for a gathering and assembled feminine body of sheepfold. This is the collage of, of this constellation. When you talk bucolic, pastoral, that's the sheepfold and all that, Kyle Obviously, if our listeners are tuned in on what you're saying here, as I'm listening to you, that's a shepherd's function, and that sounds like Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, and all these analogies to sheep that we have in the New Testament, and the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Is that where we're going, where you're saying all of this is really the gospel? Well, if you go back to the heavens are declaring the glory of God. They narrate the glory of God, or the glory of the Father, which is the Son, in his story. If they tell the meaning of the story of Christ to come, then yes, I believe there's unity within the reference to the great bear, the great northern constellation that these fins witnessed. And if you see the story of Vinamoinen, his lifestyle was very, very akin to a Christ that came to save and to provide for. So Kyle, what you're saying is this, if you start with God in faith that he began all things to his glory, for his glory, by his glory, all things still exist, then you can say that old epic tales, old mythologies can become beautiful, exciting, fun to read, all to the glory of Christ. I'm gathering from what you're saying that everything in this universe is, in that sense, required to form this complete unity under God's sovereignty and to fulfill the overarching plan of God. I believe that, and I believe that's why I, <laughs> I say it's the only way to think. And, and once again, to think in more than one dimension is necessary if you are to study languages, physics, any, any science, any art. You do not approach anything from a one-dimensional standpoint. And with that said, you definitely don't approach God from that position as well, being only one-dimensional. And it, so nature itself forces us to think in those terms. And believing in God requires that we think in these terms in order to, to see a divine majesty. Shamanism, on a psychological bent or level, is that which passes all boundaries of opposites. Carl Jung defined it, Joseph Campbell defined it. I don't necessarily quote these as a full authorities, but I say that they're good, they're good scholars. They did much scholarly treatment for the idea of shamanism. Great text on shamanism called shamanism and the art of ecstasy is by a writer named Dr. Marceau Eliade. And I would encourage anybody to get this book referring to shamanism, but shamanism is the art or the science or the religion or the psychological effect of going out of one's senses, leaving archetypes, leaving legalism, leaving the boundary lines, this is the idea of thought, leaving the boundary lines in terms of legalism, but being gracious, into going out to taking on a spirit, to taking on something and drawing it back in that is not laden with archetypes that might be made by man's hands. But the more important aspect of shamanism that I do like is that shamanism requires in this thinking that you are timeless, you're going past past the idea of time and space and width, and you're going 
out, your ecstasis, your outstanding, your out, you're trajecting yourself outside of space and time. And with that said, this lends to texts that are written that are timeless. And if you speak of one person, you might be speaking of a mass movement that took place over 500 years or 1,000 years or an infinity. And when you're referring to a person, it's anthropomorphic. It can take on different facets. And once again, the old Chinese language, the Shah Dynasty, we have pictograms that take on the, the character sketch of, some, of one thing, but it's many things, such as the word for temptation. It's a collage treatment or a, a pictogram of a tree with two people under it and a serpent on, in the tree. If you look at the word saraf in the Hebrew, referring to the angels or the guardians in, and mentioned in Isaiah 6, the word saraf, it means fire, it means copper, it means feathers, it means bronze, it means that which flies, that which is more than just the one thing, but a summation of many things. So these are concepts that really do reflect a type of shamanism, if you will. But the Kalevala lends itself to seeing or pronouncing a Christic picture or a Christic hero in terms of timelessness. So in that sense, it's contrasting, it's not against, but contrasting that of the Old Testament legalistic path or the objective nature of the Old Testament. It does not take it away, but complements it. So shamanism, for, in this sense, lends to a great thing if you are believing in sovereignty or unison or a God who's devised all things for his glory. Thank you, Kyle. You have given us a lot to think about. Obviously, the truth is far broader and more inclusive than we usually think. And so, so you're seeing truth as the totality, written in the stars, in the stories and myths of shamanism, in every sound, in every sight, everywhere, arguing for God and his glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for being with us, Kyle. We look forward to your returning next time.